So at the consecration offering, we surrender individually so that we can get hammered into that lampstand. We surrender individually to God. We give our life wholly to Him so that He might begin the process of fire which makes the gold. Then when the gold is there, they put it out into a sheet and then it's hammered into a lampstand. So nothing begins before consecration. Nothing in here begins before consecration. At the consecration offering, this process in here then begins. Now, the reason for all this is this veil here, which is life. Now, this veil was torn from top to bottom when Jesus was crucified. When Jesus walked around preaching, and he spoke about the life, he used two words. One word that's translated life is suke, and that speaks about the soul life of man. The other word he used is zoe. In classical Greek, it didn't mean what it means in the Bible. But 120 times in the, in the New Testament, the word zoe is used to speak of that specific life of God. Eternal life. The life which comes from God. In John 12, he uses it He uses both words in one verse. He said, he who saves his suke shall lose it. But he who loses his suke for my sake, another place said, and the sake of the kingdom, but for my sake shall find it unto Zoe eternal. So he who loses his suke will find his Zoe. See? Now, this veil here is the veil of truth or reality or, it's, or the life. It's, a, it's the veil of life, Zoe. His life. But when Jesus died, he didn't give up his Zoe life. He, never, he was never less than God. He always had the Zoe. What he laid down was his suke, life. His soul life, the natural, but it was of the natural. And when he was crucified, <clears throat> that veil was torn from top to bottom. <clears throat> we were studying last night was this group of people who came out of the grave when Jesus was crucified. It's a strange, strange little part in there in uh, Matthew twenty-eight fifty-one. And it says, and these souls came out of the grave and they saw them walking around in Jerusalem. So we were discussing that. What does that mean? And Julieta was saying that Derry Prince was showing that when a seed goes into the ground, that more seeds come out, right? It doesn't come out a single seed. It comes out, and he was showing it comes out as a sheaf of the first fruits. And since Jesus was sowing his suke life in the ground, that it had to produce something, and that was these souls that were come up out of the ground. Don't say they were resurrected. It says they were raised up. Different word. So <clears throat> this word, this veil, speaks about a life laid down. 
All these things are foundations for the next thing. See, we think, okay, if we get, the, if we get to the altar of incense, now we've made it, right? No, because now we have this other veil that was torn. We have access. Thank God we have access through that veil. But it's through a life laid down. See, everybody knows what John 3.16 says. But 1 John 3.16 says, He laid down his life for us. Therefore, we ought to lay down our life for the brethren. So, in the same way he laid down his life for us, we need to lay down our life for the brethren. So, there's come a time when God wants you to lay down your life for the sake of the brethren, for the sake of the church, whatever. Where do we get the strength? Where do we get the power to do that? It may not be literal. It may not be a literal laying down your life. But it'll be sacrificing your free time or sacrificing uh, your funds or sacrificing whatever you have. Laying down uh, your own comfort, maybe, for the brother. See? God will bring us to a place where it's required of everybody who's going to go on with God. Because it's kind of a principle in the kingdom of heaven. It's kind of like the eternal cross that we were doing on, the, on God's eternal purpose. That eternal cross is something that is a principle upon which a heaven operates. And so that we'll have to come to a time, if we keep growing with God, if we keep going on with God, where God will want us to lay down our advantages, He wants to lay down our, uh, maybe our businesses for the sake of the church. We don't know what it would be. It could be a, a whole realm of things. But that veil speaks about a life laid down. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through him. Now, in the church, there's a doctrine which says that once you're born again, you just go right on in to the presence of God. That now we have access into the holiest through the blood of Jesus. So because of the blood which was shed here, we can just go right in here, right into the very Shekinah glory. But First Timothy says, He dwells in unapproachable light, which no man has seen or can see. When John saw him, he fell like a dead man. When Paul saw him, he fell off his horse and was blinded. See? So how is it now that we have that access? In Hebrews, in Hebrews 10, verse 19, he said, Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place, or the, or the most holy place, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil. That is... His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope with, without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
So it would appear that we just have access right into the holiest, right into the throne of God, just because we have faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And that's what's preached many, many times. Songs, many of the, the, the gospel songs say that. But if you look up to see what it really says, it says this. He says in verse 19, Since we have confidence, or another translation say boldness, to enter. But that word is, is parousia. And it means a freedom of speech. Paul used the word when he said uh, to a church, I came to you with great boldness of speech. And that's what that word means. Parousia. It's a freedom to speak. It's not a bodily access. But now, through the blood of Jesus, we have a confidence to speak to God directly without an intermediary priest. We don't need any intermediary priest. We can speak directly to God. But it doesn't mean a bodily access into that most holy place. The reason is, we know that only the overcomers enter into there. We know that there's only those who do the will of God. See, not everyone who said to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of God, only he who does the will of God. So, as we, as we study these things, we see that there are requirements and requirements and requirements in order to enter into the most holy place. He said here that when we draw near, we have to draw near with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. All those are requirements to come near to the presence of God, see. So God has a way for us to enter in, thank God. <clears throat> but it's not automatic. And it's not for everybody who is born again. There is a whole process where God builds into us the ability or the, the stability or the character in order to, to approach in, even into this area here. So to approach in to be a part of the lampstand church requires a transformation of character. God has to change us from what we are to what we must be in order to participate in this. One of the problems with, with Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and this was Jesus' evangelistic message, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 was the first message that the eternal word of God, who was with God, who was God, when he come to this earth, he preached the kingdom of God. And the first evangelistic message that he preached was Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But the requirements of Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are so difficult that one Bible commentary says the requirements of Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are so difficult they could not be for the church under grace. So therefore, they must be for Israel during the millennium when they will have to walk under law. 
But what Jesus was preaching was, this is, how, this is how heaven is. He was preaching the gospel of the kingdom of heaven, or the good news about the kingdom of heaven. And he was saying, this is how things function in heaven. Now pray that those very things would come to the earth so that they'd function here. The problem is, they're very, very difficult. Impossible. Or, depending on how you read them, ridiculous. For example, he said, if your hand offends you, cut it off and throw it from you. <laughs> if your eye offends you, pluck it out and throw it from you. See? See, who can do that? I always say, well, if one eye offends and I pluck it out, I still got another one. <laughs> if, I, if one hand makes me sin and I cut it off, I still got another one. So how does that, how is that logical? How does that make any sense? What you see in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is that the gospel of the kingdom is so difficult that it is impossible for the natural man to do it. He cannot keep those requirements. But the good news, that's bad news, but the good news is that he has a provision available to everyone who will ask so that man can do all those things. But many of those things in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 have to do with your character. It has to do with your attitude. It has to do with your disposition. It has to do with your intentions. It has to do with practicing your righteousness before men. It has to do with giving to be seen of men. It has to do with your thought life. See? The requirements of Matthew 6, 5, 6, and 7 take in the whole realm of God's perfection. In, in verse 548, he says, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Who can do that? We can't. But the good news is, if God requires it, then he has the ability and the, and the, the uh, desire to do it for us so that we can fulfill those things. Now, Jesus preached that as an evangelistic message, his first message. It doesn't seem like that would be a good message as an evangelistic message. But he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. This is how it is. You can't make it any less than that. See, that's how it is. You can't make it less than what he said it was. So we understand that there has to be a transformation in man. Man has to be totally changed from what he is to what he must be if he's going to fulfill the requirements of Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Not even counting all the other requirements that, that the kingdom puts upon man. So when we see it in the tabernacle, we understand that all these outer court experiences build strength in the man. They build a foundation in the man. They, build, they begin to change his character. They begin to change his disposition. They begin to change his attitudes. So if anybody comes through all these experiences and they're still like they was when they were out here in the world, we say somewhere they had an unsatisfactory 
conversion. That's a polite way of saying we don't think they got saved. <laughs> but that's a popular word now. You know, you read the ministry magazines. That's a popular phrase now. They're calling it unsatisfactory conversion. My wife says what they need to do is get saved. <laughs> but a satisfactory conversion means there's been a true repentance. A satisfactory conversion means that faith has been exercised. That they have believed for the forgiveness of their sins, they stand justified before God, and they have received the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then they have laid aside their old manner of life. They just taken off the garments, say, We don't want that anymore. We're separating ourselves from that. Then they get baptized in water. Then they put on the garments of God, and then they get the anointing, the real anointing, which comes from the head down over the whole body. Once they have the whole anointing, the full anointing, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, then they need to give themselves wholly to God to do the whole will of God, whatever that means. Now, if we can get people to there, we have a pretty good idea that we had a satisfactory conversion, right? But what if they get up here and they say, no way. You know, you mean... Give yourself wholly to God like a sacrifice? Well, you don't know what God's going to do. He might send you to Africa. That's true. That's true. But is a satisfactory conversion anything less than that? When we sit in the tabernacle. Is anything less than that going to help you fulfill the requirements of the kingdom of God? Nothing less than consecration will put you on the ground where you can begin to fulfill the requirements of the kingdom of, of God. It's a requirement for every child of God. It's not for the ministries. It's for every child of God. Because we've all been called to be a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And it's this kingdom of priests that do this ministry. You're not a priest... Because you call yourself a priest. You're a priest when you function as a priest. Well, where does the priest function? He functions at the lampstand, at the table of showbread, and the altar of incense. That's the priest's function. So, if we're preparing a kingdom of priests, we have to say, consecration is one of the experiences that is required. See, we don't say to people anymore, would you like to be baptized? If you would like to be baptized, then we're going to have a time someday and we'll include you. Do you think you would like to be baptized? We say, look, this is the requirement. Repent and be baptized. That's a requirement. Don't repent, you can't be saved. You got to repent, believe, receive the Lord Jesus Christ, believe that his blood cleanses you and be baptized. That's a requirement. Be baptized in the Holy Spirit is a requirement. But when it gets to consecration, we say it's an option. It's not an option. If you're going, if you're going to be a priest of God, it's not an option. See? 
Because there are no priests who are not consecrated. And certainly there are no priests who are burning incense who are not consecrated, like King Uzziah. <laughs> so when we speak about these things, there's no place to apologize for the requirements of God. You can't say, well, you know, uh, yeah, God does say that, but, uh, you know, we're going to offer you a bargain here. We're, we're going to offer you the gospel a half price. $39.95. today, you know. We're going to offer you salvation. Just believe. Just believe. Pay your tithe, of course. And we're going to offer you salvation at half price. The, th the problem with the kingdom is it demands full price for everything. See? And when in, in Revelation 3, he says this. <clears throat> because you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. He's talking to a church here who didn't know that they were wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by the fire that you may become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. He's talking to a church. That's incredible. A lampstand church. <laughs> if you don't repent, forget it, he says. Forget it. So when, when we preach the gospel of the kingdom, we're preaching this. We're preaching the most holy. But this is where we're functioning. This is where we need to function today at the altar of incense. This is where the revival begins. See? See, we think if we get a lot of souls who don't love one another running around here, we got revival. See? See say, let's say we had a church of 200 that didn't love one another. And then we had revival when we got 500 people didn't love one another. And then God really moved and we got 1,000 people who didn't love one another. Did we have revival? No. We got a circus. We just got... We got a pretend church. See? So, the revival... The revival is when we get people to the altar of incense where they're getting revelations from the, from the Word of God, where this is illuminating, and we're getting a now word, and we have a, a corporate group, a priestly group, who are, who are praying in the sovereignty of God that the will of God be done on the earth as it is in heaven. So why is this altar all in force? Isn't that strange? That everything about that altar is for. I've, I've thought about it for a long, long time. And then when I saw, 
I had a circle one day, this big around. I wanted to make one day and forgot it. I had a circle. I, I pulled this back and I had a circle that sat right in here like this, a felt, white one. And I seen that that altar was standing right in the circle of God's sovereignty. So when you're at the altar of incense, you're standing in the sovereignty of God. And God is sovereign over everything. So if God, if Jesus is on the throne beside his Father, and the Holy Spirit is there, and we're there, we have the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the priesthood. We have four coming together to get the will of God done on the earth. So that man now is ruling over the earth. Man is actually ruling over the earth through prayer. And his prayer has the sovereignty of God behind it. See? This is not called the devil dirty names. That's not what that... That's not what the sovereignty is for. See? See, we get the real power. We can really call the devil a dirty name. That's not... That's, that's not what it's for. See, it's to stand in the circle of God's sovereignty and pray God's will down on the earth. That's when the kingdom comes, isn't it? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as is being done in heaven. See, when you pray the will of God down on the earth, the kingdom comes. Now, Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the, by the finger of God... The kingdom of God has come near you. When the kingdom comes, the devils flee, don't they? Because a greater kingdom has come. If that kingdom comes to a city, like we find in, in 2 Chronicles 29, to me that's the, that's the picture of the next revival. If you want to talk about revival, study 2 Chronicles 29, 30, and 31. And in those three chapters you'll see how the revival comes. It's, it's step by step by step by step by step, detail by detail. God just shows us the whole thing right there. And in Hezekiah's time, he started with, I think, like 10 Levites and six priests. That's, that's all that was even interested in serving God. Just a few, just a handful, just a handful of people. Then they consecrated themselves and cleaned, cleaned out the, the temple. Then the king brought sacrifices. And the thing began to build and build and build until finally Israel come down from the northern kingdom. They started tearing down idols in Judah. <laughs> and then they went to have Passover and then the, the, the revival just spread and spread and spread and spread. But the key word that you'll see as you read chapter 29, 30, and 31 is, and more priests consecrated themselves. And there were not enough priests to consecrate themselves, and the Levites were more conscientious to consecrate themselves than the priests. But when the Levites consecrated themselves, the priests got ashamed. Then they came and consecrated themselves. 
And then a hundred more bulls come, and a thousand sheep came, and then more priests consecrated themselves. And then, he says, the people started bringing things, and they made heaps. They made heaps for all the dedicated things that was brought. And because they had such an abundance, they sent supplies out to the priests who had jobs because they, they couldn't live from the offerings. Before they wasn't any offerings. But when the offerings come in, they begin to distribute the, the offerings, and then more priests consecrated themselves. And, the, and it just spread like that. But the key word through all those three chapters is consecration. So if you want to see the pattern for the next revival, that is the pattern. Because that's the key word today is consecration. You cannot build a lampstand church with half committed people. You just can't do it. And to be committed means consecrated. Give yourself to do the whole will of God. <clears throat> now in, in Hebrews 6, <clears throat> we want to we look at verse 17 to 20. Because in these verses, he puts something here that is, I don't know, every time I preach it, I get anointing. You know, every, and sometimes I cry when I preach this. But I, I repeat this nearly every, every sermon I preach. Because to me, it, it's real. You know, this is, this is real today. This is like a now word to me. It says in verse 17, chapter, uh, Hebrews 6, 17. In the same way God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath in order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement, we who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of our soul a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So now, he says, even in, a, in the same way God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath. It was not just a promise. God made a promise and then he made an oath. He sealed the promise with an oath. In order to show the unchangeableness of his purpose. In order that by these two unchangeable things, the promise and the oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement, we who have fled for refuge, in laying hold of that hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of our soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. It doesn't move. And one which enters within the veil, 
where Christ is entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we have that hope set before us. But it's not just some, some hope, some wishy-washy hope, some, well, we just hoping, we just hoping. It's not that. But it's a hope built on the promise of God, and not just a promise, but a hope built on a promise which was interposed with an oath. <laughs> so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement, we who have laid hold of the hope set before us. We have that hope now as an anchor of our soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Christ has entered the forerunner for us. So when we're speaking about these things, we're not speaking about impossibilities, are we? We're speaking about the possible, but not just the possible. We're talking about that God has made a promise and an oath. And now, the, the, the hope of entering into these experiences becomes an anchor within us. This hope is like a, a rope that reaches out with an anchor in here. The anchor, we throw the anchor here. And then we have that hope that's pulling us into these experiences. So if our hope is pulling us into here, we know these experiences are ours. If we want them. If you want to pay the price. You can have it. God is offering. Is it, will you consecrate to that degree to fill, the, fill that hope? See? It's not impossible. It's something that God has designed for us.